2: And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And do I have a treat for you today, a real story of inspiration from homeless to hero, down and out in Kansas City. This is the story of Richard Tripp, an incredibly inspirational story. I promise you it's going to make you look at your own life and think about all that you have and if you aren't already doing things to help your fellow human, <laughs> then you're going you're gonna to feel ashamed. You're going to feel like you want to go out and do something because Richard Tripp has overcome an incredible amount of hardships, including being homeless. And he has written a book about his life. It's called Please Underestimate Me. The Blood, Guts, and Soul of Richard G. G. Tripp, and that's a very accurate uh, title, subtitle. It is indeed The Blood, Guts, and Soul, and it's a wonderful, wonderful story, and by the end of this call, you will be inspired to do something similar. You know, we do hear about all kinds of horrible things going on in the world. The news is filled with them, and yes, on this show, I talk about things (laughs) like terrorism and why we shouldn't vote for Obama and so on, because they are things you need to know, but we also need to hear these messages of hope, incredibly inspirational stories. I met Richard this weekend um, at a mega book event uh, put on by Mark Victor Hansen and many of his colleagues, and uh, Richard was introduced. Actually, Richard, I I met you briefly last year, too. You were at the mega book last year as well, weren't you?
3: Yeah, I've been at probably all his events for the last 15 years. Wow.
2: So I guess we have, our paths have crossed. And when Richard said um, a couple of days ago that uh, he had this book, and um, then uh, he talked a bit about what he's doing, I just knew I had to share him and what he's doing with my listeners, with all of you. So Richard, why don't we start um, chronologically, in other words, from the time you were born, um, to to what you're doing now, but let's kind of take it slow, and in um, in the in the order of your life, just starting from your childhood. Uh, I know in the book you kind of go back and forth, and it's sort of dramatic, but I think it's a little easier to um, understand the story or to get the full uh, appreciation of the story if we just hear it really chronologically as it unfolds. So could you start with
3: okay. that? Yeah. Uh, let's start with when I was three years old, unfortunately, I caught polio. So I w- had, was at a disadvantage all my life growing up. I couldn't get out and play with the rest of the kids, uh, you know, the jungle gym and that type of stuff.
2: And uh, where, where were you born? before I we was get born to...
3: in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, to a beautiful set of parents they divorced when i was about 4 but uh they and just what kind care of, me. what
2: kind of work did your mother and father do
3: my mother was a waitress and my father was a truck driver
2: and do you think that part of why they divorced had to do was it was it hard for them to uh, or hard for your father to cope with having a child who had polio do you think
3: No, I I don't really think that was it. My father, if you speak of love, my father loved the heck out of me. I mean, if if there was one idol in my life, well, I've had many, but my father was it. (laughs)
2: Mm, Okay. So what kinds of problems were they having?
3: Well, just marital problems, probably money-wise. And uh, one problem my father did have is he drank a lot. Uh Uh-huh. And I suppose my mother didn't like that particularly. Mm-hmm. But you know, uh, things went along, and and who did you go to live with when they? I lived with my father.
2: Oh, I see. Okay.
3: I had two siblings. They stayed with my mother, and that was a little tough. You know, only getting to see a brother and sister every once in a while.
2: Did you live in the same town? Did everyone yeah, stay lived in, in Kansas thing. City?
3: The same town, but we went to different schools and that type of stuff. Uh Uh-huh. And uh, I only got to see them, like, on the weekends. And so we wasn't real close. Then we are now.
2: Uh Uh-huh. But
3: back then we wasn't uh, growing up. But one thing led to another, and I got expelled from school in the ninth grade. And
2: What were those one things that led to another? Well...
3: I was a very rowdy young teenager. I I didn't like authority. And so I wasn't a very good learner either. I mean, I wasn't good at basically anything back then, I don't believe. And there was this thing going around called Job Corps, which now is great for kids. But back then is when it started, and we're talking about in the 60s. And I decided it would be a lot better if I got out of town and got to see the world. In Job Corps. Besides that, I wouldn't have to mind my parents. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So that's what I did. I got involved uh, with the Rodman Job Corps Center in New Bedford, Massachusetts. And I went there and took training on the computer, which I never used once I took it, but it was a way of getting out of town. Mm hmm. So one thing that did happen to me when I was in Job Corps was I got lucky and... On a weekend, I decided to go to a country music show that they was having in town. And this is also the stories in chicken soup for the country show. Anyway, I uh, went and saw Johnny Cash perform and ended up after the show sneaking in the back room where he was. And uh, it was like 10 o'clock at night when the show was over. And the Job Corps Center, if I wouldn't have made it back by 11 o'clock to the center, I would have been uh, banned for three weeks from going into town. Uh Uh-huh. Well, lucky enough, Johnny Cash gave me a ride back to the center that night.
2: Hmm.
3: It was really, and I mean, you know, a young punk kid getting a ride with somebody like that. Right. Seemed to care about him. I, I felt like a million dollars. But me and Johnny became good friends as the years went along. And I learned a lot of things from him.
2: Huh. You should have been in the movie.
3: Yeah, well. (laughs) You know, Johnny was one of the neatest people you'd ever want to meet. I mean, what I like about people is when they're for real, they're from the heart. And Johnny was strictly from the heart. He he didn't have to take a snot-nosed kid back down there, and, mm-hmm. but he did. And so I've always really respected that gentleman. Okay. But anyway, I got back to, I ended up graduating Job Corps, and I come back to Kansas City. And I had a lump of money in my pocket, and the first thing I did was get married. Now, I was like 18 at the time, I believe. 17, 18, somewhere in there, and my wife was only 16. But having all that money, I thought, that's what I should do, and I did it like a fool.
2: <laughs> and how long had you known her?
3: I knew her about two years before I took her off and went to Job Corps. Hmm. And I was told to stay away from her. Uh, my parents didn't like her, family. I mean, they, it was wrong side of town, a little bit everything. But I was going to be me, and I, when I came back, I decided that's what I wanted to do.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Maybe one of the biggest mistakes I ever made. <laughs> and well, believe me, I made lots of
2: <laughs> I know, we're just starting. Um, do you think maybe that was because, you know, you, you got married so early because... Um, you had missed having a, a mothering figure nurturing you. I mean, you were only seeing her on the weekends. And Do you think you sort of wanted somebody you know, to that, take that care that of could you?
3: Be, that could be. Uh, that and I was going to show everybody I was right one mm-hmm. way or another. And everybody had told me to stay away from this girl. And uh, sometimes you get it in your mind that uh, you're just going to show everybody that right. you're right.
2: Right.
3: And then the after you do and you find out you're in the wrong, <laughs> you still don't want nobody to know it, so right. you keep putting up with whatever you're putting up with. Right. And that's basically what I did. Uh, then uh, about two years after we was together, uh, I had an experience, and I was out seeing another girl, which I shouldn't have been, and I ended up in a car wreck. And, it well, it was more than a car wreck. It was murder. <laughs> I uh, I hit a bridge. had a tire blow on me. And uh, I hit a bridge down 105 miles an hour. Went through the windshield. Slid on my back 152 feet. Busted every bone in my face. Seven ribs, shoulder, pelvic in three places. My eyeballs was hanging out. And I can remember one of the experiences was laying there, and the uh, state patrolman was standing right next to me. And I, you know, I couldn't move my body. My whole body just tingled. I felt warm, a warm flow, which was blood coming out. But I remember the police officer asked me, uh, was you driving the car? Who was driving the car? And uh, I was such a mess. All I could remember saying to him was, "Where's Carol?" Now Carol, or yeah, where's no. Carol? And uh, Debbie. Well, Debbie, I I changed the.
2: Name oh, <laughs> he changed the but, names of the book. Okay. Right.
3: Anyway, uh-huh. uh, you know, the first thing that got on my mind was where's this girl because I knew she was in the car, and before he could answer, the paramedics started working on me got me uh, into the ambulance and on the way to the hospital. Well, three or four different times on the way to the hospital, I woke up. One of them, I can remember, uh, looking over at the attendant that was beside me, and he said, you'll be okay, Mr. Tripp. And, you know, I couldn't figure out, how does this guy know my name? But, anyway, we got to the hospital, and I was in and out of uh, coma there quite a bit. And one time I woke up and my father was standing beside me. And I tried to motion my dad because he had this oxygen mask on my face where I, I couldn't talk and I was vomiting and a little bit of everything. And I finally talked to my dad and turned me on my side. He finally figured out what I was trying to say. Well, as he did, the nurse and uh, the emergency room said leave that guy alone he's just gonna die and I remember my father and her getting in the words before I passed back out
2: yeah what a what a thing to say We yeah. <laughs> what a place to end but yes because uh, I'm sure you know that Those kinds of pronouncements can, in fact, cause the very thing that uh, she's saying is going to happen. I mean, if a patient starts to believe it, it takes away your will to live. But we need to uh, take a break right now. We're talking with Richard Tripp, the author of Please Underestimate Me, and how he went from homeless to hero, down and out in Kansas City. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Show with Carrie Douglas, broadcast each Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, and is brought to you by Gospel Truth Magazine and Worldwide Music Incorporated on the Voice America Channel. The Carrie Douglas Show with Carrie Douglas, your premier source for faith-based entertainment, news, events, and trends.
1: Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com.
4: Every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel.
0: VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Richard Tripp. He is the author of Please Underestimate Me, The Blood, Guts, and Soul of Richard Tripp, and we're beginning that journey now. Uh, This is an inspiring story. We're going to be hearing uh, about his journey of overcoming incredible obstacles and the magical work that he's doing now, but let's uh, sort of... Take our time and linger over this story because it's only that way that you can appreciate um, just how how huge uh, his efforts have been to come to the place where he is now. So we left off where he's in the hospital after a car wreck um, where the nurse is saying, telling his father that he's going to die. <laughs> Go ahead. Take it from here.
3: Okay. Anyway, as I said, I passed out uh, right when... The nurse yelled, he's just going to die. Well, as I was passing out, and all during the time I was having this happen to me, I kept telling myself, this just is a bad dream. It's not real. You'll wake up, Rick. It ain't real. Well, the next time I woke up, I uh, my wife was standing next to me. And she's looking down at me, and she's got this pitiful look on her face, sort of a love-hate look, and she's saying to me, Rick, who was the woman that was with you? Who was the girl that was in the wreck with you? Well, she hadn't known that I'd been messing around, and I looked at her, and as calmly as could be, I said, but honey, there wasn't nobody with me. Well, what I didn't know is not more than four foot away from me, they had this girl laying on a stretcher with a broken nose and a broken leg. So I didn't get out of that lie too easy. Mm. (laughs) So the next thing I remember was a few days later, and I woke up, and I heard my mother's voice. And she's talking to me, and then I heard my wife's voice, and she's talking. And I started getting really scared because... I can hear him talk to me, but I can't see him. Well, what had happened, they had rebuilt my face and stitched my eyes uh, shut so I couldn't open them, why the bones under my eyes would uh, heal. But I remember I was in like shock, terror, whatever you want to call it. I'm saying to my mom, Mom, am I blind? No, Rick, you're okay, but, but Mom, I can't see. And I I remember it so vividly even now, you know. And she said, well, you'll be okay, son. Just lay back. We'll be here. Well, I guess they sedated me again, and I went back to sleep. And uh, within two weeks, they opened my eyes. They took the stitches out, and I could see. Ended up, while I was in that hospital, I would lost my job. So me, my wife, and my little baby girl, well, that's one part I forgot to tell you. When I was in the hospital room, I remember saying to God, wait a minute, God, if this is real, if I die, what's going to happen to my baby girl? I can't die, God. i got to be here. I mean, how's my baby girl going to make it? And, you know, I remember that so vividly. But... Going back to when we moved in with my mother, we lived there with her for a few months because basically I couldn't work. I had wires that come out above my temples that went on the inside of my face and they had a little white buttons hooked. My jaw was wired together. I lost probably 150 pounds during that time. But one thing led to another and My wife ended up going to work with my mother as a waitress. And I was stuck with my little girl in the daytime babysitting until they got a babysitter. But we started having real deep marital problems. uh, And a guy called me that went with my sister. And when I'd been going with this other girl, I'd left a helmet over at her house, a motorcycle helmet. And the guy wanted his helmet back. And so he said he was going to go to see the girl to get it. And I said, no, you ain't. I'll go over and get the helmet because I hadn't seen the girl since the hospital. And actually, I wanted to find out how she was doing because I had all this guilt about being in the wreck with her, uh, almost killing her, you know. So I went over. I wasn't going over to have a fling with her or anything. I mean... I was just trying to find out how she was. Well, one thing led to another, and I ended up having another fling with her. And my wife, by that time, had decided she wanted to divorce anyway, and she was doing her own thing. so she moved down to the country, uh, down to Harrisonville, Missouri. And I ended up moving down there trying to get back with my wife, and I tried, you name it, Wining dining, uh, I got a part time job there. everything to try to get my kid back because I had found out after my wife moved, we found out she was pregnant again, and so basically, I knew I'd messed up, and I was trying to make amends for it and get my family back together. And you know, I love kids. I always have, and especially my own. And I tried everything I could to get back with my wife, but it just didn't work no matter what I did. So we ended up getting a divorce. And uh, I went down to see my kids one Saturday. And I was hitchhiking back then. I didn't have a car. I was hitchhiking back and forth. And I was coming back to town. And a guy picked me up. We stopped by his farmhouse and. He had to feed some of his livestock, and he asked me if I wanted to ride one of the horses he had. And I said, sure, I mean, a free horse ride. I got up on it. Anyway, I ended up breaking my pelvic. The horse took off with me, and we come up on blacktop, and I ended up breaking my pelvic in three places. So I ended up in the hospital with that. And why I was in the hospital. Yeah.
2: how old are you at this point in the story?
3: Uh, About 20. Okay about 20 and while I'm in the hospital my wife gets the final on the divorce and moves off down south well this girl that I'd been meeting uh, living with on the side uh, she comes in the hospital to see me well my wife I, I laid there for like oh I don't know six months And my wife never did come, but this other girl did. So when I got out, she told me she was pregnant. And so I decided to do the right thing, what I thought was the right thing, and marry her. One of the worst mistakes I ever made in my life. But uh, we lived together about four years. Had about four more kids. And then she took off. So we're talking I was right at right at twenty eight twenty nine by then. And I in the process of all this going on I started driving a cab because I couldn't do regular work like most people because of my legs uh that swell up on me. So I started driving a cab and I drove a cab up until uh I became homeless, which was I was about 34 I guess.
2: And why don't you talk about how that happened? I mean, you were sort of um on the fringe of I mean, you didn't weren't making a lot of money. You were but but what finally happened that made you homeless?
3: Well, what finally happened was I ended up my legs kept getting worse. See, I have what they call rheumatoid arthritis. And so, if I'm on my legs for any amount of time, they'll either swell up on me or I'll just lose control of them and I'll drop like a stone. And uh, some of the people saw me at the in the taxi. Some of my bosses found out that I had fell one day and they wanted to know why. And uh, they told me I had to go get a physical because of their insurance. I tried telling them that You know, it didn't matter. It was just, I just tripped, 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 but they didn't buy it. Anyway, I ended up losing my job, losing my house, and I ended up on the street. Now, during all this time, one thing that I'd done from the time I was roughly 20 to 29 was for the pain in my body. I started drinking, and by the time I ended up, I was drinking roughly, oh, I'd say roughly a good estimate would be three pints of whiskey a day. Hmm. Never drunk. I used it as medication. You couldn't tell. Nobody ever knew I was drinking. I knew, but I didn't figure it was anybody else's business.
2: Well, we need to take another break, but um, you know, I guess it was a combination of the rheumatoid arthritis, the polio, the, the fractured pelvis, the bones that were broken from the car accident. I mean, you had by that point you had already um, really uh, done a lot of damage to your body, or, and it had been done. What what hadn't? <laughs> some of it had already been done, and the rest of it you you added to by these various accidents. So. So you were hurting uh, emotionally and physically and spiritually at that point, correct?
3: That's correct.
2: All right. We'll hear the rest of this story about uh, how Mr. Tripp went from homelessness to hero down and out in Kansas City when we come back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Everything you want, everything you want to do, and everything you want to have is right at your fingertips. People think that accomplishing your goals has to be difficult. Guess what? It doesn't. All you need are the right tools and a map.
4: Rich, full stars.
0: And that is what author, professional speaker, and now talk radio host Sharman Lane is offering you. Join Charmin Wednesday afternoons at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel for success made simple.
5: easy to understand tools and tips with his weekly guests. Jim draws from successes with professionals, college, high school, and youth teams, coaches, and players. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance. Tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with championship thinking every
1: Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time, right here on America's voice voice America. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help?
0: If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at
1: 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking today with Richard Tripp, and the he is the author of Please Underestimate Me, a new book It just came out, The Blood, Guts, and Soul of Richard G. Tripp. And, um, you know, you would an hour is is not really enough to hear all the details of his life because so there's a lot that he had to because of time sort of gloss over but um i mean your your life is like a movie and it's it's almost as though if um, someone wrote a script like that it would be hard to believe that all of these things happened. I mean, there was a lot of drama going back and forth between your first wife and your second wife and trying to get your children, uh, so desperately and, and, um, being so hurt and your children being taken away from your second wife and being put in foster care and, um, you not being allowed to see the girls because your wife lied about, uh, you being a child molester, and, and she sort of got friendly with the person who was representing her, and they were able to convince the judge that you shouldn't see your daughters, which, of course, was incredibly painful. And uh, so there was a lot, you know, there's so much more to, to this story, but we also want to get to the the homeless part, when which is what right. inspired you to do your life's work. So let's talk about some of the your experiences okay. being homeless.
3: Okay. When I ended up homeless. I decided to get involved with the shelter. I ended up living under the Broadway Bridge in Kansas City. Uh, you know, all them years I drove a cab. I drove a cab, well, now it's been close to 40 years. But at that particular time, I was about 30 when I started driving. And I'd seen all these homeless people on the street. And I thought that they was just moms and drunks. And, you know, my life was pretty messed up anyway. I'd I'd lost my family. Like I said, I'd over-self-medicated on the booze, and I had the attitude that nothing really mattered except going to work, drinking, going to sleep, going back to work, drinking, going to sleep. So when I became homeless, it was scary. I think one of the scariest things that ever happened to me was that first day that I knew I'd lost my apartment because I couldn't pay the rent, didn't have a job, because I'd lost my hack license. And uh, learning how to survive, it became that, like I said, I thought all these homeless people was just bombs. From all the years I'd seen them on the street, I mean, I had no real idea what they was going through. I figured if they wanted a job, All they'd have to do is go out and find one. That is, until the day I got homeless myself. And I started seeing things happen at various shelters. I seen a gentleman get uh, stabbed by five guys one day. And I broke it up. I, I saw people have to set out in the cold and freeze their hands off actually literally freeze their fingers and toes off because one of the staff members might think they'd been drinking or something and wouldn't let them in Uh, or because they didn't have a dollar to get in the shelter. What most people don't realize is the shelter system is big business. A lot of money goes there and the money that goes there don't naturally always make it to the homeless. A lot of time... It makes it to the bank, but not to the people it's given for. But anyway, when I saw a lot of abuse being handed out to the homeless, I decided to do something about it, and I started talking about it, and finally ended up in the paper and made a lot of enemies with the shelters, and...
2: Because you were blowing the whistle on them and That's talking it. about some of the things that were going on there the people the staff stealing the clothes and the food from the homeless people
3: right, so when that happened, I remember one winter night this is what really when I really turned and decided to start making a difference. I went to a shelter it was about five o'clock, and they show closed the shelter at six on the winter's nights. And I walked in the shelter, and I, like I said, i done made a lot of enemies to different shelters in my town. And uh, one of the staff members came down and said, "Trip, the director wants to see you in his office. So I went up to his office and sat down. And I said, what's wrong, Joe? And he said, well, you're going to have to leave our shelter. I said, what well, do you mean? You know I can't get no other shelter this time of night. Well, that's not my problem. I can only do what i got to do, and you've got to leave. So I walked out that shelter about 6 o'clock that night. I remember looking up, and it was raining ice. And I'm thinking to myself, boy, did I really goof up. I mean, here I was talking about how they was treating them, and now, look, I talked myself into death because I'll probably die out here tonight. And, you know, at that time, I think was one of the worst moments when I thought I was really going to die out there that night because of the cold and the sleet and the ice and the snow. And finally, what I ended up doing that night was walking up to the police station, and I sat in the police station all night. And uh, that's how I survived that night. But I remember looking up in clouds when it was raining ice. I said, God, I don't know if I'm going to make it through this tonight. But if I do, Lord, I promise you one thing. There won't be another place in this city, another person that they can pull this on. I promise you that if I make it through this night, they're really going to find out it's not nice, shall we say. Anyway, so trying to cut ahead real fast I ended up making a shelter uh, down by the river under the Broadway Bridge here and then I ended up getting involved with another shelter as a staff member one that had just opened up and this story uh, I've told a lot but it's one worth telling I'm at that shelter about two weeks after I was there I'm downstairs in the basement, and I'm putting away day old sandwiches, which this Jewish boy or Jewish man and his five year old boy would bring in every day off their catering truck. And so I'm sitting there putting the sandwiches away, and the little Jewish boy walks up to me and he says, Sir, this for the homeless, too. And he handed me a brown paper sack. I stuck it in my pocket. I said, okay, thank you. I didn't know what it was. I figured it might be candy or cookies or whatever. I didn't know. And anyway, about 30 minutes later, the director of the shelter came to me and he said, uh, look, Trip, the guy that was supposed to give the speech to these ministers tonight got sick. So since you're one of our new members, we'll let you talk to him and tell him about the shelter. Well, at that particular time, I'd never gotten up and spoke to anybody about anything. And I got down there, and I got up on that podium, and there was about 100 ministers from St. Paul's School of Theology. And uh, I looked out at them, and I just froze. I couldn't speak. I mean, looking out at them, it it was like I was a stone statue, butterflies, a whole routine. (laughs) Anyway, for some reason, I remembered that sack in my pocket and I pulled that sack out and I looked in the sack and I started bawling I actually started bawling right there because what this little 5 year old boy had given me was his piggy bank now if a little 5 year old Jewish boy can give you his piggy bank for the homeless how much more should I have been doing there
2: Hmm.
3: not protecting Richard Tripp but doing my part of helping my brothers and sisters.
2: Mm.
3: And that's actually where I got started. My organization now that's known as COP, of Poor People. But that's actually where it started. And there's been a whole lot since. Uh, Back at the time on Christmas, the shelters, all the shelters in Kansas City, on Christmas morning was putting a homeless out on the streets they didn't have anywhere to go. They'd tell them they was put them out so they could get ready for their Christmas dinner. So I ended up talking. Uh, yes, you
2: know that's such a um, that's really a poignant part of your story because I mean what, Christmas morning it's sort of the worst time of the year to be put out on the street. You know that's the yeah, time well, when you know, not only don't you have a Christmas tree and Christmas presents but you suddenly find yourself out on the street at five o'clock in the morning.
3: Yep. The libraries are closed. The hospitals chase people out. They find them in them. But virtually, the homeless didn't have anywhere they could go. And I figured a way of coming up with a place for the homeless to go. And uh, it was called Christmas Breakfast for the Homeless. And we did that uh, for like seven years at COP before the other shelters finally got wise and started holding the homeless in, doing something for them in the daytime on Christmas morning, giving them something to go because I was getting too much press
2: Hmm.
3: on what I was doing. And at the time, I wasn't even a 501. I was just a single guy that got these people together that uh, pulled it off. But, you know, after I got... Started with the Christmas breakfast. I run cop. That was nineteen ninety, ninety one, ninety two, ninety three, roughly. Uh, in about ninety three, I was working as a cab driver again. I'd done not been homeless. I mean, I was back on my feet. I was staying in motels every night, driving my cab during the day, and I'd started drinking again.
2: And we need to stop that here and come back. Uh, just to, to remind people, um, when um, Mr. Chip talks about COP, he's talking about the organization that he started that it stands for, well, it's COPP, and it stands for Care of Poor People, Inc. And we're going to tell you more about that um, as we continue. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at
1: 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's
0: Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And we're talking today with Richard Tripp. He's the author of Please Underestimate Me. His story is From Homeless to Hero, down and out in Kansas City. Um, So why don't you continue where we left off?
3: Okay, um... I told you about the child and the piggy bank. Well, right then I decided that after all the abuses I'd seen in different shelters to the poor and the homeless, that something had to be done about it and nobody was doing anything. So I decided I was going to do it. And I think what really got me to do it was everybody told me I couldn't do anything because I was just a dumb cab driver. So, when everybody thought that it gave me room to move. I, I got back off the street and uh got my organization started, but I wasn't looking uh for what happened. This was about three years about ninety three. And uh I had started drinking again when I got back in the cab. The only time I didn't drink is when I was homeless. That's kinda odd I know. Mm. But that's the only time I didn't drink. I didn't have the money. And I wasn't one of these type of people to get out here with a sign. That just ain't me.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: But I uh, i was at a hotel one night, and, you know, I started thinking I was this real neat guy because everybody told me I was a real neat <laughs> guy because of all this stuff I'd done with the homeless. And I had a reputation of being a real neat guy by everybody. And so I started believing it, and I started drinking more and more. And I ended up one night at a hotel. It was on a Friday night. I had just held one of my Christmas breakfasts the week before, and I decided I was going to party. So I bought me a, a gallon of Canadian Miss Whiskey that weekend, and I drunk it all that weekend. And Monday morning I woke up on the floor, couldn't figure out how I'd got down there. But I pulled myself up, and as soon as I stood up, I started coughing. And then I seen a little blood in it, and it scared me. And I called Truman Medical Center, and uh, I said, uh, Hey, I just saw some blood and some vomit. That Anything to that? Well, you probably got a bleeding ulcer. Just come in whenever you can. So I hung the phone up, and I headed over to the sink, and I got a big glass of cold water and drank it down. Well, as soon as that cold water hit my stomach, I started heaving blood everywhere. And actually what I'd done, I'd uh, blew one of the veins in my oscopicus, and it had literally blown up from, I guess, alcohol, liver, Mm -hmm. whatever. Anyway, so as much as I was vomiting blood, I knew that I couldn't really uh, afford to wait on an ambulance. So I jumped in my cab, and I drove even all the way to Truman Medical Center, which is about 20 miles. Now the doctors tell me I couldn't have done it, but I guarantee I did it. On the way, I saw a couple, couple of police cars. Tried to get them to stop. I didn't even pull over, so I just kept going. I get to the hospital, and they rush me back uh, in the emergency room and start throwing tubes and IVs and everything at me. And uh, I remember looking up at this doctor, real cute, little blonde. And, you know, the thing is, there wasn't no pain. I didn't feel no pain during all this, but I was heaving blood like crazy. And uh, I looked up at the doctor. I said, hey, doc, you don't die from something like this, do you? And she looks down at me in a pitiful way. She said, "If only if we can't get the bleeding to stop." At and so time, this
2: was yet another example of of um, you being sort of on the verge of life and death. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm concerned about the time going. So why don't we? Why don't you sort of um, okay. bring us up to closer to the present and all the wonderful things that you're and your hopes as well for COP.
3: Okay. Well, first, let me say I, I laid in that hospital that time for nine months. I got out of the hospital the next day. I jumped back in the cab on a walker. I got a walker. I'm walking around my car to get in it. And the very first fare I got was Mark Victor Hansen. Now, I I, I can tell you that it was it was more than a miracle. There's no way after all that time, almost dying. And your very first fare ends up being Mark Victor Hansen, the chicken soup guy. But anyway, uh, I picked him up. He wrote about me in a chicken couple of the chicken soup books. He helped me. Now, up until that point, until I met Mark, Cop had just been known as uh a, a organization that fed people once a year. Well, after I met Mark, things took off. We started feeding people. We got our 501. Uh, God has blessed me so much. I've been on stage with people like Gandhi, Rudy, Tony Robbins, Jack Canfield, Mark Victor. Uh, But none of that happened until after I stopped drinking. You see, I think it was God telling me, I need you to do this. I need you to help your brothers and sister, But you can't do it with that booze. Anyway, so now, today... Every year we feed literally thousands of people. We clothe them. We get them off the street. We've got different programs. If people would go to my website at com, which is C-O-P-P-I-N-C.com, they could see all the different people with helped and stories and pictures and the whole routine. The thing is, I finally decided, after all the bad stuff, to make a difference in this world, you know. I haven't got a dream. What I've got is a destiny. And that destiny me is to change how the poor and homeless of not only America, but the world are treated to help each of them get back up on their feet. And that's what I'm about nowadays. I, uh, You know, if you look at your Bible, your Torah, your Koran, Even the Egyptian Book of the Dead, they all tell us how we should treat our brothers and sisters. Do we? I think not, but we should. And my main focus of motivating people is getting people to personally get involved with helping the homeless in their own home communities. They can find out how to do that by going to my website. It tells you how to do it. But once you personally get involved, I mean, writing a check, yes, it takes money for organizations. But I believe everybody should get their money's worth when they're writing that check out. You should know where that money goes. The only way you can really know is to go down and get involved. Then you see in your heart where your money goes and that you're making a real difference.
2: Yes, that's a very good point because, I mean, you say that even today, Um, a lot of the money that goes to homeless shelters or homeless programs don't really get to the homeless. It's still that way today in some places. Is that correct?
3: That's correct.
2: Well, um, so are you starting the sort of a – are you – is COP uh, involved in starting homeless programs in other cities? I mean, in in, in other words, is it connected to COP that that, – what
3: I've done over the last ten years, roughly, is we'll put up how to do your programs, and people will go. I show them how to do it, and they do it. I go around the country, and I give speeches. I tell people how to get started in their own community, how to make a real difference, how to help those that can't help themselves. Basically, get people off off the street.
2: Well, you know, it's just, you're just amazing, and um I, your story is incredibly inspirational. I hope all of you, you know, it started out, and I'm sure you're all kind of wondering, now how could somebody with these kinds of humble beginnings and difficult beginnings and one tragedy and accident and health problem and relationship problem and um just one tragedy after another, wind up doing something good but in fact I invite you to go to um, Richard's website again it's copinc.com cop stands for care of poor people and uh, the website is copinc.com com. again his book is Please Underestimate Me The Blood, Guts, and Soul of Richard G. Tripp and uh, you know he does. He tells you like it is. Uh, we've only really been able to scratch the surface of the book, um, so and of his life. So I really do invite you to buy the book and to um, to find out the details. But the bottom line to it all is that despite all the things that life was dishing out to him and the things that he admits. You know, he blames himself for it. He takes full responsibility for some of the choices that he's made. But the bottom line is that uh, he's used all of that, all of these down-and-out experiences, to not only raise himself up, but to devote his life to raising everyone else up, not only the homeless through his programs, but us by being involved with his programs and by being able to be touched by his life. So, again, uh, his book is Please Underestimate Me, and he does present a very humble, uh, he is indeed very humble for all of the wonderful, wonderful work that he's done. So, Richard, thank you very much for sharing your story with us, and I wish you well and I'm um, full of admiration for you. So, thank you. Thank you, ma'am. And you've all been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. I hope this story has touched you and made you do something about it.
1: Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.